0: It's cool hearing stories. I always enjoy hearing stories of the right people being in the right place at the right time with skill sets like that that can do work like that. I can't even plant a shrub, you know. (laughs) But I'm not there. The guys that know what they're doing are there and they're doing something great. I love hearing stories like that. Hey, if you're here with us, turn in your Bible to Matthew 5. While you're turning there in your device or in a Bible, and listen, if you didn't walk in with either one, we'll put it up on the screen for you. But while you sit there in that plastic chair, believe it or not, there is a battle raging, there are casualties, (laughs) it's a very real war and it's being fought 280 characters at a time on Twitter um, or on any real social media app that, or forum I guess when I think about it, through discussions on cultural issues or political issues and all the hot topics that kind of float within those two things, you know, sex, gender, money, skin color, religion. We could take all of it and compress it and just call it the culture war today, right? A lot of back and forth in what we'll call the culture war. I just want you to visualize that for a moment while you sit there. Right now, right now, somebody is irritated at something they just read in an article or something they just watched on a video and they are quickly banging out their opinion down in a little section, and then they're hitting post, or they're hitting go. And, and then right after that, somebody 2,000 miles away is saying, what? Well, then I'll t-. And then they get on there, and they start typing. And of course, it's totally thoughtless. or not putting any prayer or deep consideration into it. And then they hit go. And then somebody 1,000 miles away is doing the same thing, and on and on it goes. And then right afterward, half of those people get out of their car, and they go into their church service. <laughs> Because Christians can be just as bad as anybody else that likes to rant on social media. Because on social media, in the culture war, deep thinking and etiquette need not really apply. Because after all, you're never really going to see that person and they're never going to see you. And Christians can be very guilty in this culture war. Just because we slap a passage on the, on the back side of it or a scripture reference, it doesn't really sanctify what we're trying to say. What's interesting about crowds this size, because this isn't a big crowd, is how different we are, right? I mean, I, I think we're, there's probably more similarity than difference in the room. I, I, what, what I mean is I think we'll probably agree on more than what we disagree on. But if I was to throw a topic out there and ask on what side of the fence you land on that particular topic, let's say like white privilege, how you feel about that, or Black Lives Matter, Right? or toxic masculinity. If I were to throw some of these hot cultural items out there and say, if you believe this way about that, raise your hand, you would check the room before you raised your hand, right? You would scan the horizon and make sure you were not the only one doing it. And those are just a few topics. I just don't think it would take us very long to find out how much we disagree with each other, right? And even where we do generally agree, like let's take something like, abortion, or gender dysphoria, or something where there might be a pretty good general consensus, we still wouldn't be able to agree on what to do about those things, or how to get involved, or whether we even should be involved, or what the Bible says to it, or what Jesus has to say to these things, if anything. I mean, consider, I was listening to the news the other day, and I heard something that shocked me, something I was vaguely familiar with, but the top 2,000 the top 2,000 sprinters in the world are men, right? That means that 2,000 sprinters that they've measured their times on, the top 2,000 male sprinters in the 100 meters is faster than the fastest female in the same distance. But we're now in a world where a man can reassign his gender just like that and start shattering records and record books. We're already in a place where we're seeing scholarships pulled from biological females because a biological male is now associating and presenting as a female, right? Now what does the Bible have to say about that? What does the gospel have to say about that? How involved should you be? What should you think? Should you say anything online? Should you just let all the rabid sides eat each other on that and you just kinda step off the track and let everyone do what they wanna do? It's complicated. But I'm not willing to say that things are more complicated today than they were when Jesus walked the earth. I think Team Jesus, I think they had their own set of issues. You know, kids were treated differently back then than they are today. Women were treated differently back then than they are today, especially single moms, very different. It was a different society, but I, I think it was just as complicated. Our problems are different, but we still have problems. I'm also unwilling to say that this Bible that I have in my hand and the one you have in your lap does not speak to the issues of today just because it's old. Just because it was a long time ago that God through his spirit breathed and inspired the words that you hold in your lap that it is unable to speak to Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement or anything like that because they didn't have that going on back then, right? That's, that's actually something that C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. The idea that what is old is outdated and what is newer is actually truer, right? But to detach the scriptures from today's issues is to just pretend that God didn't see today's issues whenever he breathed these into existence thousands of years ago, right? And I think some say that the church's role is to just stay out of the culture war. Let, let them do what they're going to do. All we need to do is preach the gospel. That's all we need to do. Just preach the gospel. Luke, just preach the Bible. That's all that needs to happen. We're going to stay out of the public domain. It's not important for us. But then I think a lot of people would say the opposite. No, Luke, you're not really preaching the gospel unless you're right in the fat middle of the culture war. That's how you know you're preaching the gospel. This is a letter written from Martin Luther King while he was in a jail in Birmingham almost 60 years ago. He says this towards the end of his letter. He says, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard so many ministers say, ministers, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between body and soul, the sacred and the secular, right? So I know what camp he's in. And listen, I know I'm already too political for some of you. I know I've already crossed that line. You don't like talking about this stuff. You don't like ever talking about these issues. It might be because you don't know all the facts on the issue, so it makes you kind of insecure to weigh in on one side or the other. Maybe you just don't like arguing. Maybe you don't even like being in the room where people are arguing. So it's very easy for you to just want to detach from this and not want to deal with it, right? But how's that working? It's been hard for you. Silence on an issue is a stance on an issue. Silence isn't really an option. If there's a key issue, and you've decided you're just not gonna weigh in on it, it is seen as an endorsement of the status quo. And the status quo isn't always very good, is it? So silence isn't really an option for us. And where I might be too political already, I know I'm not political enough for some of you. I know that because you've told me. You love talking about this stuff. You could go all day talking about this stuff. But I'm not Sean Hannity. And this isn't Fox News. And we're not the Republican Party. Right? So here's the big question How invested are you supposed to be in the culture wars of today? Right? How distinct are you supposed to be? How loud are you supposed to be? How visible? How obvious? You know, For the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at this idea of being a very distinct people invested in the city for the sake of the city. Invested in this city for the sake of the city so that the city itself, meaning your neighbors, your peers, your friends, would be fascinated by the glory of God. Fascinated, not just for the city's sake, but for your enjoyment. That's the happiest place for you to be. The most joyful and happiest place for you to exist and live is where you're in the middle of what God has called you to do where he's called you to be, how he's called you to live. And and that means being distinct, as we're going to see today. We're going to look at all of this through what people call the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably the most celebrated and, I think, dissected sermons ever preached because Jesus is answering the question that is begging to be answered by this point in time in history. How does the gospel bring shape to our lives? How does the news of God's love for you Through Jesus, who came here fully God and fully man for you, who lived passionately and brilliantly for you, who died excruciatingly for you, who was raised from dead by the power of God's very own spirit for you, who is now at the right hand of God interceding for you by name, who is creating space and building a welcome spot for you where he will come back and collect you. How does this story, this gospel, how does it shape divorce and marriage and retaliation and sex and lust and forgiveness and prayer and money and anxiety? How does it shape these things? I mean, certainly the, the gospel's good news for salvation. We get that, right? And That's what Paul says, that it is the power of God for salvation, but you know what? It's also good news for your sex life. It's great news for your anxiety. It's great news for how to live every day with the peace instead of the bitterness and the unforgiveness that you're tempted to walk in. It's fantastic news for your money, whether you have a bunch or don't have very much at all. You know, we're also gonna see through this sermon what obedience looks like. But listen, not just obedience, joyful obedience joyful because there's a difference, right? Obedience isn't really the witness that the world wants. It's how we enjoy Jesus that elevates and glorifies God. This is what God says in Ezekiel 11. This is a fascinating passage. I love this passage. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Okay, before we finish that, you need to know that if you're a Christian in here right now, this happened to you. This ha- before you just fell in love with Jesus, Before you prayed, before you did anything, before you walked up to a camp counselor, this happened in your heart. If you read about it in books, or you hear a theologian speak on it, um, or you kind of catch it in a commentary, it's referred to as regeneration. This is the chief pinnacle text attached to the doctrine of regeneration. And he says, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. God changed a heart in you if you love Jesus. Because you had a heart that had no ability to feel. It didn't have an ability to be swooned into compassion. It didn't have an empathetic leaning for a godly reason. It was stone. And then he pulls it out and he gives you a heart of flesh that you can feel. Not to say that you can just behave under God better, but that you could love the God who gives you the statutes regeneration. It's a beautiful passage. What happens is, is when we love God and obey God from a place of love, this is what actually makes your neighbor sit up and take a mental note. This is what Jesus says in John 17 when he's praying to his father. He says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay, that's kind of, it might sound jumbled. This is what he's saying. He's like, I'm not just praying for these disciples, the closest ones to me. I'm actually also praying for those who are gonna hear the gospel from these guys. And those who are gonna hear the gospel from those guys. And those who are gonna hear the gospel from those guys, all the way down to you, so you are being prayed for in this moment. You're in John 17, if you didn't know that. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's you, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is great. What he's saying is, is that when we enjoy the Father as the Son has enjoyed the Father, and when we walk in unison with each other, the world will see the gospel come right off the page. It's a beautiful witness. And I should know, this is what really got my attention before I became a Christian. This was it junior in college I saw men acting like men for the very first time I, I just with my eyes I could see Christian masculinity I'd never seen it before guys that were totally secure in saying things like I love Jesus and they were free to lay their life down and take responsibility for messes that were not their messes and they were quick to defer and honor each other And they were quick to love me, even though I didn't deserve it. I saw masculinity, and it grabbed my attention. I took a mental note. You see, we felt like this would be a great little mini-series to kind of dovetail into the book of Esther that we just finished. Because in Esther, God's people, if you remember, were spread all over the known world. It says in chapter 1, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, and I'm sure they were even spread beyond that, right? They are no longer a collected people in one location. They were no longer distinct because of where they lived. They're spread everywhere because of exile, right? I'm sure some still had Jewish names. A lot of Jewish traditions had moved through. But for every generation living away from home, they were looking more and more like foreigners, which is why in the book of Esther, she was looking more Persian than she was Jewish for the majority of that story. And we totally get that because that's where we are. Just like Esther, the Persia that we live into, we can start living a life after a while where we just don't look distinct anymore. We look like our surroundings, we look like everybody else. So, as we live in our Persia, away from our true home, because we are just traveling and sojourning here, how can we live shaped by the gospel and the good news of God? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is going to help us with. So, let's look in chapter 5 of Matthew. And we are actually going to jump in at verse 13. We're not doing the Beatitudes, even though that is a part of the greater Sermon on the Mount. We're going to move to verse 13, and we're going to start there. And so this is the word of the Lord for you and me today. We're going to see Christ much more clearly in this passage. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? when this is being, I know it's called the Sermon on the Mount. There weren't any mountains where this was preached, really. I mean, it's more like Bearden Hill that we have here than it is like the Smoky Mountains. There weren't any hills, or not even very many hills, but the biggest they would have is a hill. But the multitudes and the crowds that this talks about being around during this time that Matthew says is collected to hear this sermon, they are disciples. So it's not just the 12 that are committed to Christ, but a disciple is one who would follow a rabbi. So you'd have a lot of people there that were interested in learning more and were learning at the feet of Jesus, but they may or may not have been Christians. We don't know 100% for all of them. But Jesus knew that their temptation would be the same as yours, which is to not be distinct, to not be obvious and to not stand out. That's a solid temptation, to just dissolve into culture around us, because you're safe if you do that. From being exposed because that's terrifying from being judged rejected from experiencing all of that discomfort and trial but what jesus says is the church cannot be a family that hides from its calling the church cannot be a family that is hiding from the people that we are called to invest ourselves into This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. If you don't have that book, you you ought to get it and stick it on your bookshelf. But he says, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus, which seeks to hide itself, has ceased to follow him. Hear that, has ceased to follow him. Flight into the invisible. What Bonhoeffer is saying is retreating into a culture to hide is not a gospel-shaped motion for us. For the Church of Jesus Christ, capital C, we're not supposed to hide from society, but to actually invest ourselves to permeate, to preserve, to show, to love, to reveal who Jesus is. So what Jesus does is he actually grabs two things that would have been very obvious that would have needed no explanation, even though we do need a little bit of explanation, they needed none. And he would say, these are good metaphors for what it means to live as a distinct person today, right? Salt in light. He says, you're salt, unless you're not. And if you're not, you're not very helpful. You're more useless than anything. Now, some people have wondered how salt could lose its saltiness since it's sodium chloride and that's a stable compound (laughs) it does not break down I know I sound like a nerd right now but I want you to remember I was a biochemistry major when I first got radically saved and so whenever I was like three weeks old in Jesus and knew absolutely nothing I read this and it bugged me I thought wait a minute Jesus come on salt doesn't really lose its saltiness salt is salty and this salt is salty and that's the way it is This is what he's saying. Most salt back then, it came from maybe a marsh, what they would call a salt marsh, or from lakes, all right? Now, what you could do is you could take this salt, which was full of impurities, full of junk, and you could just leach the sodium chloride out of it because it's highly soluble. But what you would be left with is a bunch of residue from that that is loaded with impurities, and that is basically dirt. It's useless. It's not helpful at all. What Christ is saying is, is to lose your saltiness is to be defiled. It's to have taken on so much junk that you're basically just worth a handful of dirt. It's not very helpful at all. I mean, think about that. The most basic part about salt is that it's different. It's distinct. That's why we use it a lot of times. We don't sprinkle salt on our food because it tastes just like the food, right? It's different. It's different. But back then, salt had a more important purpose because it was an antiseptic. It would keep there from being spoilage in the food, which is something we don't really struggle with today, right? Because we have refrigerators or ice chests or things like that. But back then, economies were based on salt. Wars were fought over salt because you would use it all over your food to keep it from going bad. Fresh food was a problem back then. So what Christ is saying is, is, you're different. No matter where you go, no matter where you find yourself, you are different. And you were designed to, hear it now, preserve your surroundings from spoiling. That's what you're designed to do. That's your very design. But if you're loaded with junk and impurities, you're really not that helpful anymore. Not helpful. And so where salt is best when it's salty, light is best when it's uncovered. Because nobody takes a flashlight, turns it on, throws it in a drawer, and shuts the drawer, right? And the more light you have, the more truth and reality you see. The more truth and reality you see. If you don't have much light, don't see much truth and reality. The more you have, the more you see. It's kind of like if you've not, listen, if you've not been camping out in the Smokies, you need to get out there and camp. You need to do it this year, right? You just got to do it. But one of the things I love about it is whenever it's time to go to bed, and you shut the campfire down because don't ever go to bed with that thing still going. right? So you shut that thing down, turned all the lights off, you can't see your hand in front of your face. The canopy is so thick you can't even really see the stars. And it's awesome. And I love just laying there in the hammock and just relaxing in total darkness in nature. But occasionally what happens is, is some wayward camper is, is had gone to the bathroom and they've got this little tiny headlamp on and they just can't find their own camp their own campsite. So they'll come walking into yours. And it used to bug me until I would go to the bathroom and then I would end up in someone else's campsite. I'm not trying to steal anything. I just don't know where I'm at, man. And so the more light you have, the more reality you see and the more truth you have. This is really what Christ is just trying to get across. He's saying you're designed to reveal, you're designed to show reality and to show what truth is. Why would you keep that hidden? It's dorky. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you keep that a secret? You see, both these metaphors, they raise very important questions for you and me today on how involved we are in society and culture. Seems like a jump, but it's not. You're going to see here in a minute. But here's the problem. The problem is, is this world does not want to be changed if it means leaving the dark. It does not want it. This world loves the darkness, and it hates the light. It hates the light, and it loves the darkness, because in the dark, deeds can stay hidden, and the light, they become exposed. This is what is said in John John 3, I'm just, you could stay where you're at. We'll put it up on the screen for you. But in John 3, verse 19, Jesus, he says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, he's speaking of himself, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And this makes total sense to me. It it makes total sense to you, too, hopefully. I mean, to a certain extent, listen, this is why your friends who are far from Jesus, that's why they're nervous whenever they're in a room full of Christians. Right? The fear, the terrifying fear of being exposed. This is why they stop cussing immediately as soon as they find out that you love Jesus, all right? That happened to me all the time. They cuss, cuss, cuss. They're so at home. They're so relaxed in their own skin, and then they find out I'm a pastor. And it's like now they've got to act like they're a pastor all of a sudden. I know you're not a pastor. <laughs> it's probably why they're not here, too, right? How nervous. How uncomfortable. Squirmy. Why? Because they love the dark. Having stuff exposed is terrifying. It's also why they've not told you all their secrets. You think that they have, they haven't. They're gonna keep those in the dark. They're not gonna bring those out, not into the light. It's also why, even technologically and commercially, why Chrome and other browsers have an incognito option. That's not so you can buy plane tickets for your spouse to surprise them. That's not why they designed that. It's because we love darkness. We don't want things to be revealed. That's why you can delete your search history on anything you own, because we love darkness. We don't want our life to be revealed. We want our stuff to stay hidden. Exposure is terrifying, and it is repulsive to us, even today, even today, even if you love Jesus. I want you to consider what it feels like, and and if you've never been in this position, by God's grace, you will be someday. Whenever you take that thing that has been lodged so dark and deep into the recesses of of your heart that you finally feel like, I'm gonna bring this out and I'm gonna tell people where I'm really struggling, whether it's a one-on-one or a one-on-two. If you've been in those moments, you know, you could hear your heart beating in your ears. You're so nervous. There's like no spit in your mouth. You feel like, here it goes, I'm about to say it. I'm about to tell them what's really going on. They're never gonna love me again. They're gonna judge me. They're never gonna see me again. It's terrifying. It's very courageous. But it is excruciating. Why? Because mankind loves the dark. So what does Jesus do? He steps into darkness for you and for me and carries us into light as children of light. That's what the Bible says. Jesus was exposed to all the darkness we could heap on his shoulders. All the stuff you've done in the dark and all the stuff done to you in the dark has been placed on his shoulders. And he rescues us from not just the dark things that we have done, but from the shame that comes with it. And he takes our hands and he carries us into a place of light where we are free to be exposed and vulnerable and seen and obvious. He rescues us from this incognito living and squirming Anytime we feel like we're in a setting or in a moment where we feel like we might be exposed. I want you to consider something that God said to his people 700 years before Jesus. God says in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, who, those who sit in darkness. So what this is saying about you and me is, we were not just in the dark, but we were in prisons. Shackled to a taskmaster. And God saw us sitting in the darkness of this dungeon and had compassion and care for us. And he reaches out and he takes our hand and he leads us into light. This is why it's powerful when you see 700 years later, when you see Jesus stand up and say in John 8, I am the light of the world. He's saying, that thing in Isaiah, that's me. I am he. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Consider that for a moment. Just consider this. All of the evil deeds you've done in the dark, all of the things done to you in the dark, stuff you still don't want to talk about, they've been placed on the shoulders of Jesus. And the shame that came with it, all of it, and you've been given the light of life, which means you no longer have to live in secrecy because you're free to be failed. You're free to be exposed. It's not terrifying anymore because we're clean in his eyes. He's carried the shame away from you and from me. So there's no reason to hide or cover ourselves like Adam did in the garden or like Eve did in the garden whenever they felt shame come over them. We don't have to do that anymore. There's no terror left. In his affections for you and for me, they're not modified. They don't change. He's like a a prodigal father that rushes to us. Even though we come with a bunch of stuff done to us and a bunch of stuff that we've done, he comes as a prodigal father and he wraps his just passionate arms around us even though we are who we are. There's nothing to hide anymore. There's no terror associated with that anymore. Three, this is where it gets extra cool. God takes this church, this church, and he sends them right back into the darkness. Sends them right back into broken places to do what? To preserve and to show salt and light, right? John 17, verses 15 and 18, he says this in his prayer to his father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one as you sent me into the world. So I have sent them into the world, which brings us back to our temptation, which is to hide and be polluted, to return to that dungeon that we came from. But here, let me warn you on this. It might be encouraging to some of you. It might not be. The mark of a Christian life is not a life without sin. It's a life that hates sin. It's it's not a life that has no sin in it. It's a life that abhors and hates sin. I don't care what your youth pastor told you. If you don't hate your sin and you find the darkness beautiful and you find the light repulsive, you're likely not a Christian not a Christian, sorry. I'm sorry, but I'm not. You need to hear it, because here's the thing, a regenerated heart that's been turned from stone into flesh, it finds different things beautiful than it used to. It finds different things repulsive than it used to, because it's a new heart. It's a new heart. So what do we do? That's why we work out our salvation, Paul says. Work out your salvation. Don't work for it, but you got to work it out. You need to wrestle with what your heart finds beautiful and what it finds to be repulsive i know you'll have moments of sin you'll have seasons of sin but as disciples you should have a hatred of sin a hatred for it okay so what do we do because typically sermons on this passage they will very predictably drift towards doing more stuff differently right you can already feel it coming just doing more stuff differently That's where we're supposed to go from here. In other words, I'm supposed to shame you at this point into behaving differently. Some of you might even want that, by the way, because you're used to it. But where has that been effective for us? Shame-based obedience, right? Even if you did perform better, what does that show the world? It doesn't show that you hate sin. It shows that you hate getting spanked for sin. And it shows that you, you used to perform a certain way in the dark, but now you have to perform a certain way in the light, in the church, I don't know that that's a great, fantastic witness. Here's the broken equation I see all the time, especially here in the Deep South. People disobey, they perform poorly, they feel rotten and shameful, so they come to places like this or meet with people like us, right? And then what do we do? We tell them how to obey, and so if they feel like if they can obey, their obedience removes that rotten shame that they feel about themselves, and they could live their best life now. That's the broken equation. What that is called a shame-based obedience. You can obey for about six minutes and actually feel less shameful. And that's what provokes a lot of people to live the way that they live. And I've seen pastors and leaders use this to get action from their people Because it works. Because I feel like, and I'm not even a fantastic communicator, right? But I think I can maybe manipulate you into writing big checks if I can make you feel rotten and shameful for the fact that you're not writing big checks. Or if we need more volunteers. I could probably edge a sermon towards such a degree that you would feel rotten and shameful aside and you would actually sign up for something. It works. Shame-based obedience works. That's not the way Christ built his church, though and he had no shame whenever he obeyed. Christ walked and he obeyed his father, but it wasn't from a place of shame. It was a place from joy, right? It's filled with the Holy Spirit. So why would he build a church that operated off of shame as its motor? He intends for us to obey and behave and perform and live our life by what? The power of the Holy Spirit and by joy, the same way he did A church that is shame-based in its obedience, it, it could probably do some pretty cool things in this city, but it doesn't show a different life. It just shows a different performance, right? But what does any of this have to do with the culture war and your investment in it and my investment in it, right? Christ says we're called to preserve and bring light and truth, right? Light and truth, salt and light. Now, we don't see Jesus going out of his way to be a jerk, do we? I don't see him going out of his way to, to troll people or be offensive, but the words coming out of his mouth, there's a direct confrontation with sin and evil. There is a war. That's why he says in Matthew, he says, don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And that's the way I remember it when I got radically saved. He was the compassionate prodigal father with soft eyes and his arms around me, yet the words coming out of his mouth had an edge to him, right? There was a fire to those words. I think this is important for us. I'm hearing more and more Christian leaders and even Christians talking about hitting pause for a while on culture wars because of the current fever pitch because it is getting out of control. And I, I see why they'd say that. Maybe this is you, right? Maybe you just wanna, like I said, step off the track of the culture war. Not, no comment here. And I'll even agree the rhetoric is crazy. The dialogue is more shouting than anything. But retreat? Retreat? Okay, from what? Let's pick one. You wanna retreat from abortion? I mean, where do we tell the gospel to shut up? Where do we tell darkness it's cool? Where do we say that the gospel has no context in our world? Where do we allow darkness to prevail? Sexism, racism, poverty, prison reform, pornography, gender, gentrification, All Right? Which of these should we retreat from? Now, to be very clear, there is ample room for Christians to mature in how they handle this, right? Ample room. I mean, I cringe whenever I scroll through social media sometimes after there's been like some big news, like legislation passed or there was a shooting somewhere, I scroll through and I can predict it and I see it every time some person somewhere with an avatar that's not even a picture of them, you know, and they got some weird wonky theology and they say something totally crazy town and they took no time to think about it, pray about it, and then they slap a passage on there. I mean I just want to message them and say thank you so much for contributing. Thank you, that makes it so easy for me and how I'm working with my neighbors. That's weird. It's just weird. So there's plenty of room for us. We should always be evaluating our posture and our timing and our words and in what we say because being loud and snarky and quick, it's not really working. It's never been effective. This is what Carl Truman says who is a historian and professor. I like it, he says it well. Just as brain surgery cannot be done with a sledgehammer and a chainsaw, so careful theology on contentious issues cannot be done constructively in 280 characters. Well said. I know the temptation to do it, though. It's the same one you have. I'll read a dumb article or see a dumb content, and I'm, I'm thinking, where's my blowtorch? I'm gonna light this up. I'm so upset, I can't wait to hit enter. I know the temptation to do that. Well, then what do we do, Luke? What do we do? How should we be involved then? I'm gonna say one obvious thing, and then one thing that we can apply today, okay? I think the obvious thing is we shift our weight. We do have a unique opportunity to shape government and public policy. It's unique. It's unique for our church and our country. We have a freedom to choose our political leaders. That means we have a freedom to influence public policy. Right? So vote, not just for president, vote for everything. Vote for everything. If you read Romans 13 correctly, and this is a different sermon, so we're not gonna do it today. But if you read it correctly, and it's about submission to worldly authorities, you will see that there is a God-given responsibility to rule, and that rests on the shoulders of elected officials, but guess what that means? It means it rests on your shoulders as well if you're picking those elected officials. It means we have a responsibility. We wield power, so we have to leverage our voice for our fellow man, especially if our fellow man does not have a voice, right, or if they're unborn. And I think if we fail to do this, we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. Don't vote because it's a red, white, and blue thing to do. Vote because it's something beautiful. It's a way that you can love your fellow man. Think of it that way, right? Because assault and light, I think it's a travesty if we just surrender to injustice and just say that the gospel has no word on everything that we are involved with today. But I think probably the more solid way that we can invest ourselves today in the middle of a culture war is to invest ourselves in our community. In our community, meaning your neighborhood, your workplace, the seven homes around your home, because that's where the real culture war is won and lost. It's on the streets, it's not online. Nobody, and I mean nobody, says, you know what? I used to advocate for gender fluidity, or at least thought I had a position, but then, check it, then I was on Facebook, and I saw a link to a video, and I went and watched that video, it was fantastic production, and now my whole mind has been blown and changed. Nobody says that. Nobody says, you know what, I used to be kind of a racist, and I was okay with racism, but then I saw two people fighting about it on Twitter, and it changed my world. Nobody says that, man. Nobody. But your neighbors and your peers and your friends, they are spoiling in the dark. And yet we are salt and light. They're spoiling where we used to be. Paul says in Ephesians, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. And Jesus prayed that you would go back into what you were rescued from. And this means being highly invested in broken areas. Not just physically broken areas. Those are the obvious ones and we should be highly invested in those. If it's physically, visibly broken, you know, it looks like a, a road lined with soup kitchens and places that serve those who are impoverished physically, or even emotional poverty, but also spiritual poverty, also spiritual poverty. We're to be invested in all of those. Being invested in this way, I'm not just talking about starting a program, because that's overwhelming, right? Some of you who are leading calm groups, you've already kind of felt that, like, God, do we start a program? It stalls out too quick. Just talking about loving people, inviting them into your life, inviting them into your home, inviting them into your family, inviting them into your holidays, inviting them into your vacations, inviting them into your secrets, inviting them into real conversations, inviting them into your friendships, inviting them into your treasures, and your... Inviting them. Being a host. Because hospitality is just finding those who are outsiders and showing them grace, bringing them close.. I think this is a fantastic way to shift a culture war that is raging around us it's moving first it's stepping into discomfort it's being exposed by the way how are you doing on this and let me ask you if if you how do you know have you asked people around you how you're doing in this wait let's do it differently have you asked the lost people around you the non-christians how you're doing in this I mean, let's just get real, because isn't that the real measure of how well we're doing at being salt or light? Maybe not your best bro in here, but somebody who's far from Christ that you're talking to? Luke, what would that even sound like? I've had this conversation with friends in the past who are far from Jesus. This is what it sounds like. Hey, listen, we don't agree on everything, right? We've got some key differences. But if you had questions over God or the Bible or religion or any of that stuff, do you feel like I would be a safe person to ask those questions to? Watch what they say. They might say, yeah, just because you're sitting there in front of them, but you can see the hesitation if that's all it is. Or just say, hey, listen, what are one or two things that maybe I do or my family does that provokes you to think of God differently and see what they say? How are you doing at being salt or light? Have you even talked to anybody about this? how do you measure how you're doing? And listen, and when you do relate to those far from Jesus, the folks you're building with, friends, peers, neighbors, drop every attempt to appear clean and well-behaved. Just drop it. Drop it. Just be who you are. Because what shows them the glory of the gospel is not how awesome you behave, but how awesome God's love for you is whenever you misbehave. Absolutely, gospel change in your heart will provoke different living. And they'll see that. But what will really catch their fascination and their imagination is when they see you misbehave, and then they see how huge God's love for you is in the midst of that, in your worst performance. So let the culture war rage on. Let Twitter be Twitter. Let Instagram be Instagram. Let trolls be trolls. You focus on your neighbors and your peers and your friends. Focus on your fellow man. Leverage your civic responsibility whenever you have the opportunity. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me and we'll get out of this sermon. But as we sing and as the lights dim and as people kind of in their own timing and whenever they feel like it, when they go back and maybe take communion and then come back and sing, in this whole moment where we are responding to Christ, because that's what this is. It's where you're responding to how the word has maybe communicated to you, how God has spoken to you. There is room for us to repent. First of all, are you hiding? What do you find beautiful and what do you find repulsive? What is still hidden deep down in your life that you've struggled bringing to the surface? What is hidden that maybe maybe your spouse doesn't know it? Maybe your best friend doesn't know it? No one in your community group knows it? It's down there, and it sits, and it just festers. What are you hiding? Can I convince you that God is better than whatever you're getting by hiding that? That God is better. You know, I love this quote. Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. Where are you tempted to do that? Where is your salt found in purity to the point that you're not very helpful anymore? Right? I think there's room for us to repent there. And I think there's room for others to repent in here as well because not everybody in here is a Christian, right? I mean, we have searchers, we have skeptics, we have people that are just kind of kicking tires on this thing called Christianity. Let me give you some good news if that's you. You're not clean enough for God. You're not good enough for God. But you're perfect for him at the same time. Because that's what the gospel does. The gospel grabs us and it's God's moment of saying, You're perfect for me, and I'm perfect for you. Because of what He has done for us in a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Right? You'll never find what you're looking for in dark places. You know that because you've been trying. And you know what it feels like to be in a in a dungeon chained. You feel like there's no way out because you've been there for a long time, too. Good news begins with you knowing and acknowledging, I cannot because it always ends with, but God has. But God has. So my submission is that you turn from all of your attempts to earn God's love, that you turn from your your temptation to just obey out of shame, to turn from dark things in dark places, to admit that things are not going well, to admit that they're not likely to get better, to admit that you're not enough, but to confidently assert that God is. You are not good enough. You are not clean enough, but you are perfect. And because of what God has done in Christ, he sees us as clean. He sees us as good. He sees us as beloved. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being kind and good to us. Thank you for being generous. The only reason you are able to say, Father, that we are salt and that we are light is because you made it such. And you took something on your shoulders that I cannot conceive of. I cannot comprehend the amount of pain and separation and wrath and darkness you suffered because of what we put on your shoulders. And not just us, but all of mankind. All things done with dark hearts and dark places and all the shame attached to it. You took unto yourself, you hung on the cross and you did so with the joy set before you that we would be rescued and called family and brought to a new banquet and a new place, a new heaven and a new earth and that we would enjoy you, you and our close proximity to you. We would enjoy that more than anything else in this world. That we would enjoy son and enjoy being daughter more than anything this world could give us. So, Lord, I know that even as a sermon like this moves forward, it doesn't take long for your Holy Spirit to shine a light on our hearts and show us what we've been hiding. It just doesn't take long. Because I know we spend the rest of the sermon trying to talk ourselves out of the fact that we're hiding something. But, Lord, in this moment, that you would give us courage and confidence that you are better than keeping hidden things hidden. That you're better. That you're better, and we could be satisfied in that. Lord, that you would change our hearts. That in the culture war, with all the crazy topics and controversies that swirl around us, Father, that there is room for your gospel. And it starts with how we handle our neighbors. It starts with how we handle our fellow man and how we love our city and how we can be a distinct people that preserve Knoxville, that preserve our neighborhoods, that shine and direct light at the truth that your gospel is. So Lord, give us confidence to speak and to pray today, to sing, to cry, to give, to take communion And then, Father, for those in here who are far from you, those who you are, maybe even today, maybe even today, Father, that you're taking stone hearts out of chests and you're putting a heart of flesh in, maybe even today. Because you are that good. Lord, rescue souls today. Change hearts today. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You're so good and generous and thoughtful and kind and benevolence. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.